Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a best-selling author, a speaker, and a mastermind facilitator. In fact, this episode is brought to you by PMA's Mastermind Leadership Program, which is accepting applications right now for the 2023 summer and fall cohorts. We are building a wonderful community of senior nonprofit leaders across the country just like you, and we'd love to have you consider joining us. If you're ready to better define your path to nonprofit leadership, check it out at PattonMcDowell.com for more information. Now, I know you're going to enjoy this fantastic conversation I had with Leah Kroll, who has written a wonderfully practical book called Innovation for Social Change. And I'm quite certain these are two things on your list of goals as a nonprofit leader, because it is certainly a culture of innovation you're trying to create. And I know you're trying to actually move the needle as you seek social change on whatever element is central to your nonprofit mission. Well, Leah's got specific ideas to help you make progress on both of these fronts. And we discuss how to spark more innovation and ideas within the team dynamic that you have now and how you translate these good ideas into action. We also talked about how to create innovation literally in your organization's DNA and how you can bring what she describes as your innovation A-game every day to your nonprofit. Lots of reasons to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 204. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you can find all of the resources Leah and I discussed, as well as more information on the great work she's doing at the Mercatus Center and, of course, how to get a copy of her book called Innovation for Social Change. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Leah Crawl. Leah, thank you for joining me on the path. It's so exciting to be here. Thanks, Patton. Well, I'm delighted to have this conversation with you. I'm looking at a copy of your fantastic book. It's called Innovation for Social Change, How Wildly Successful Nonprofits Inspire and Deliver Results. So there'll be lots of things you and I can unpack over the course of this conversation as a result of what you're writing. In fact, it leads to, Leah, the, the question. I know our listeners right now, they want to lead with innovation. They want to inspire positive social change, but I think they have some struggles with this. And I wonder if you might first comment on what are the reasons nonprofit leaders maybe struggle with creating innovation? There there are a lot of reasons, a lot of things that get in the way of innovation. Um, but first, you know, if you think about it, nonprofits provide some of the greatest gifts to the world and take on some of its hardest problems. Nonprofits are building civil society. Our work eases hunger and fights injustice. Nonprofits that advance education can help break the chains of ignorance and poverty. We've got recovery programs, mental health counseling, medical care and research that provides healing Arts programs lift the human spirits. So, you know, many people are counting on the work of nonprofits, and we need organizations that empower us to ask courageous questions and innovate and experiment to discover what works best. Um, but, Patton, you're so right. Leaders and organizations really struggle sometimes with innovation. So, what does get in the way of people being innovative? And to answer that, I would say there, first, there's no doubt that people working hard in the nonprofit world have passion and heart. We're carrying out a mission that we believe in. We're serving beneficiaries that we care about. 
So if passion isn't the problem, well, what is? Um, first, I'd say there's sort of this fog, right? Uh, there's this fog in the philanthropic world where good intentions don't automatically mean we have clarity about what we need to do. Right. Um, you, you might be familiar with that great uh, quote from Stephen Covey that we might be climbing up the ladder, but is the ladder leaning up against the far right wall in the first place? Um, that's, that's a really good challenge, right? So how do we know when we're working in nonprofits? Um, and I remember, Pat, in one of your previous podcast guests mentioned compassion fatigue. Right, being, right. Yeah, being stretched too thin, kind of struggling to prioritize and confidently say no to things. Um, at my own nonprofit, we'll call it the tyranny of the urgent. Yes. Um, there can be sort of this misguided thinking, you know, that we just don't have time to be strategic and, and we can just get busy and bogged down in the weeds of our work, kind of get trapped in what I'll call myopic thinking. Right. And this, all these things, right, can get in the way of making the time to be thoughtful about the big picture and intentional or to stress test our thinking and ask ourselves those hard questions. And then another challenge, a uh, big one, can be misguided metrics, which can just get us kind of bogged down in bureaucracy. And I've got a whole chapter on this in the book, <laughs> uh, you know. You're good. Um, and for good reason though, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, we can easily measure the wrong thing and that can take us off track. And then, you know, you think about how nonprofits are different from the for-profit world. So, you know, nonprofits aren't necessarily answerable to our beneficiaries like a, a for-profit would be to a customer. Right. Rather, we're, we're answerable to donors. And so that changes the dynamics of how we work. So you've got, you know, people in nonprofits who are on the front lines doing the work. They're the implementers and the ones closest to our beneficiaries, but they may or may not be empowered. So um, you've got things that are unpredictable and constantly changing. So if an organization is too top down, then the organizational structure itself can get in the way of people being innovative. And then um, last, workplace culture, right? That matters a lot. So if people are afraid to speak up, um, that's a problem. And we have to be able to ask, you know, how do we break out of ruts? How do we challenge the status quo? So if there's a, a failure to empower people on the front lines, um, they're going to be the ones with the best ideas. So creating a workplace culture of innovation, it, it's not going to happen by accident. It has to be intentional. So there are many things that get in the way of, of being innovative. You framed it perfectly. Thank you, Leah. Because I, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm nodding myself and I imagine many of our <laughs> listeners are nodding too because they, they they can uh, understand and, and in fact, maybe living some of those issues right now at their organization. So we will unpack many of them again because your book indeed provides the kind of resources and practical advice. If you're facing some of those challenges, here's something you can do about it. And that's what <laughs> we will talk about. But before we go there, let's talk about your journey. Leah, what what kind of experiences and, and, and kind of leadership path have you been on that brought you to the work you're doing now? Sure. Well, my life has kind of taken some crazy twists and turns, but I guess everyone's leadership journey is unique. Um, but for me, the first seven years of my career, I started out in the for-profit world. So I'm originally from Northeast Ohio, and it's very industrialized there. And so everyone I knew, you know, my family, my friends were involved in, say, the automotive industry or the aeronautics industry. And these are all people really gifted at making things, you know, industrial engineers. And so because I was sort of immersed in this world, I 
I, I thought that was going to be my path, but eventually in time, I realized my life was going to take me on a different direction. Um, but some things really stick with me from that time. Um, I'm so thankful that I got exposed to what I'll call the greats of management philosophy. So people like Drucker, Covey, Deming, um, I got really immersed in those ideas and got to see them in practice in the for-profit world. So even though uh, I, my career shifted, right, those things still stay with me and I use them today. Um, but my life did end up taking kind of a wild detour. So my husband, who is far more adventurous than I am, had always had this dream to join the Peace Corps. And uh, though I was a bit reluctant, he kind of sweet talked me into this. So we did a two year tour of duty in Jamaica. And it ended up being amazing, a profound, life-changing experience. And I saw poverty unlike anything we have really in, in the U.S. I saw people struggling to survive in a black market economy. I also saw many acts of courage and generosity and uh, heroes in Jamaica. And when I think back on that time, uh, there's this quote from Fred Rogers, I think it was during around September 11th, where he said, in times of crisis, look for the heroes. And I really did have the privilege to see many people stepping up in that kind of environment of terrible poverty. You know, saw lots of helpers and heroes, people working in schools and communities and couldn't help but be moved and changed by that experience. Um, and then there were things that were just very shocking to me, like, um, you know, things that just would be so foreign to us here in, in the developed world. But um, I saw a lot of Jamaicans who would build their homes by hand, kind of block by block, you know, so they would gather materials over a period of years. Uh, you know, their homes might be just very humble, right, with concrete blocks, maybe a corrugated zinc roof, dirt floors. Um, but what really shocked me was despite all that, most, a lot of Jamaicans did not have legal land title to their home and were considered illegal squatters, um, you know, living under the risk of bulldozing. And that was not by their choice. Right. Um, and that just really kind of stuck in my craw. And so I would see, you know, as I mentioned, many people doing good things in Jamaica, lots of NGOs, you know, doing, doing good work with the schools and with healthcare, but something really fundamental, like helping people be empowered and have rights to their own homes. Uh, nobody was really working on that. So the lesson there was just kind of that fog of philanthropy, right? Good intentions, but sometimes we can have barn sized blind spots. Right. Just going to echo that experience, obviously, has kind of shaped uh, as you moved forward, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, you just couldn't help but be affected by by seeing those things. So, um, you know, it just kind of blew me away and got me interested in the questions of, well, how do we solve these you know, very big problems and what are solutions to poverty? And uh, I knew I, from that point on, I wanted to work with people who were working in the space of philanthropy. So um, I came back to the U.S. and got a master's in public policy. And not too long after graduating, I found this exciting role at an organization just outside of Washington, D.C., called the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And Mercatus uh, has been around for about 40 years. And I like to describe it as the home of brainy economists who work to discover what aspects of institutions and culture help societies prosper. Wow. The, the heart and it's a neat place. Right. Um, the, the heart and soul of Mercatus is really economics. For example, Mercatus raises money for scholarships so young people can study economics at George Mason. Um, and then the economists and scholars who work at Mercatus will research real world public policy issues. Uh, for example, like should city governments, how should city governments think about stadium subsidies? 
or in this age of polarization, how can markets work properly if there's a breakdown in social trust and civil discourse and what can we do about it? So it's a very creative place with lots of experimentation and innovative work always happening there. Um, so one big thing that attracted me to Mercatus um, was this interesting job opening that they had. Uh, they, they wanted their work to be meaningful and accountable to their board and donors, and they needed someone to work with their teams to facilitate program evaluation, program strategy, results reporting. And I realized there was this unique opportunity to apply my knowledge from the for-profit world of management systems into a nonprofit setting. So right. it was a really good match. And I've been here ever since, almost 17 years now. And what I love about this work is helping teams to draw out their creative thinking about solving a social problem. It's really fun and creative work. Well, it's a fantastic, fascinating organization and, and one that I'm going to encourage our listeners as they check out this episode. Of course, they're going to be looking for an opportunity to get a hold of your book, but the work you're doing now also, I think, will be of interest to many of our listeners, and I encourage them to learn more. Um, in fact, that is a good segue, though, to the book. So after this 17-year wonderful experience you've had, is how did the idea for the book evolve? Well, so uh, like like you said, uh, for the last two decades, my role has involved doing a lot of facilitation with nonprofit teams to draw out their best ideas and thinking um, and how to make sure that our results are effective and that we're accountable. And I know this is something that every nonprofit struggles with. And so I do this for Mercatus teams, but we also have a wider network of 200 university centers across the country that have similar missions. Maybe they work on economics or uh, pluralism or civil discourse. And so my workshops are available to them as well. And so I would be giving workshops on topics like, how do you develop a theory of change? Uh, what are the right metrics that make sense for your team? Or how do we identify risks and obstacles in the way of, of our mission and vision? Um, how do we build an innovative workplace culture? So, um, you know, I, I really enjoy doing that work. And I felt like, well, when I can help teams get their clarity of find clarity of thinking and feel like they're firing on all cylinders and be more effective, that really makes me happy. And I think that must have shined through because uh, about three years ago, my executive director said, Leah, I've been hearing these great things about your workshops. Why don't you put them into book form? Right, and uh, right. that really took me by surprise, a pleasant surprise. Um, but I thought, how exciting. Yes, let's do this. So uh, I set out to convert my mini PowerPoint decks from my workshops into book chapters. Chapters, and that was no small task. Um, I interviewed nonprofit leaders and researched examples and stories. And um, there are many stories of nonprofit innovators and entrepreneurs in the book. Uh, for example, the chapter on workplace culture shares stories from Mayo Clinic, which is just a powerhouse of innovation. Right. Uh, the, the chapter on experimentation shares stories from nonprofits working with at-risk youth. And then I also wanted to make sure to include stories of cautionary tales of nonprofit misfires, which are actually not that easy to find. It takes a lot of digging because no one really wants to talk about those things. things um, but it didn't go well, right? They don't necessarily <laughs> yeah. want to reveal that, right? Yeah, um, but uh, I did manage to find some and they're, they're in the book. But uh, somewhat really surprising, like uh, Whole House in Chicago. I think most people have heard of Whole House. Um, they they were around for over a hundred years. They did immigrant. They were they were an immigrant resettlement house in Chicago, and they were famous. Um, the founder Jane Adams had won the Nobel Peace Prize for their work. There were copycats all over the country of um, immigrant resettlement houses, 
But um, the city of Chicago was shocked when Hull House had suddenly closed its doors after 100 years. Uh, that was in 2012. So what happened there? And as you dig into the story, it turns out that there's there's a story there of sort of blind spots and failing to ask key questions. Um, they experienced mission drift and eventually lost their super fans and their local supporter base and had to close their doors. There's stories like that are powerful and there's a lot we can learn from them. So um, gathering these stories of nonprofit innovation, successes and failures for the book, all in all, it took about two and a half years. I learned a lot. And it's also based on you know, 20 years of my own experience. And just knowing that there are so many nonprofit teams out there struggling with similar things, I set out to share practices that any nonprofit can do to be more innovative, no matter its size or budget. Oh, it's, again, fantastic. And those stories, you're right illustrate the issues uh, in, in such a powerful way. And I'm glad, as you said, you took the extra time to find some of the, the cautionary tales um, because we, have, we need to, as nonprofit leaders, we need to think about that um, yeah. and, and, and balance, right? Those positive aspirations, but also the cautionary issues as well. Yes. Yeah. And I, I keep thinking about, I wonder why they, they were so hard to find. And maybe it's because, you know, everybody is a little bit embarrassed, right? Donors yeah. are embarrassed. The nonprofit itself right. is embarrassed. So it's not something that people are, um, you know, uh, shining Eager a light to talk on. about. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad, again, they did in some cases. And, and again, it makes the book, which is divided very uh, in a very powerful way into four sections or four parts. And I thought maybe I'd ask you about each part. And for our listeners, you know, you've got so many practical takeaways. So these are not just theoretical ideas around innovation, uh, but they're also things they can literally implement right away. So let me jump into the first one, if I could, Leah. The You, you kind of framed the first uh, part of the book about tools to help spark innovation or innovative ideas. So maybe could you speak to that concept and maybe some examples or ideas that would help a listener maybe put that into practice? Yeah, yeah. the first part of the book is really fun. It's all about sparking creative thinking, um, giving giving a, a leader exercises that they can try with their own teams. And um, I, I believe in stealing good ideas wherever you see them. And we in nonprofits can, can learn a lot of insights from this field called design thinking. And design thinking is a process that's often used by very creative companies, um, like the movie company Pixar. So nonprofit teams can also use these techniques as well. And it's a process for exploring what's possible and thinking creatively and strategically. So with design thinking, we ask ourselves three sets of questions. What's desirable? What's scalable? And what's feasible? And I'll, I'll briefly explain each. Sure. So, so the, the what's desirable question is helping us get at, well, what's, what's the actual problem we're trying to solve at our nonprofit? And are we good at identifying hidden needs? And teams really can struggle with this, but it's so important because being clear about our problem um, from there, everything we do cascades from that. So for example, let's say you work at a nonprofit that focuses on workforce development. Well, what aspect of workforce development are you trying to solve? Are you, are you focused on those who are temporarily unemployed and readily find their way back to work with a little help? Or what about the chronically unemployed or underemployed? So what is the social problem you're really trying to solve at your nonprofit? And so um, in this section, I share a story of Greystone Bakery in Yonkers, New York, which does workforce development. 
the team at Greystone Bakery wanted to take on some of the hardest cases of the chronically unemployed, and they worked very hard to understand the problem they were trying to solve. To do this, they designed immersion experiences, and its founder, who was an aeronautical engineer, actually experimented with living on the street for a few weeks to better understand the clients they were serving. So that his goal was to walk in their shoes, and what they learned from these immersion experiences was powerful, and they ended up radically redesigning their workforce training programs and are very unique and successful. So that's what's desirable. It's getting clarity about the problem we're trying to solve. And then the question of what's scalable? Well, what if that seemingly small idea of yours has giant ramifications? And there are some great stories in the book, for example, from the civil rights movement, how they did, you know, they, they weren't sure exactly what problem they were going to work on early on, but they did a lot of uh, small experiments, uh, say, you know, in a locality overturning a specific Jim Crow law. And um, from those experiments, they learned how to scale nationally. So there are good questions in the what scalable chapter about helping leaders think about scaling and growing. And then what's feasible. So in nonprofits, there are many problems we want to tackle. And when we have many possible opportunities, how do we narrow and focus? And I think I see that challenge consistently with just about every team I, I work with. Um, it's, it's a struggle, right? How do we choose when we have limited resources? We have to be realistic. So there's a set of questions when we ask what's feasible to help us think through um, you know, what, what's realistic here and which battles can we actually win? Um, it's really helpful to find clarity about this before we invest our resources into programs. So all in all, this first section of the book, Using Design Thinking, um, teaches a leader how, how to take a team through these ideation exercises and, and provide series of questions and stories. And these are useful whether you're doing back of the envelope thinking by yourself or surfacing ideas as a team facilitator. Yeah, I love that, Leah, in terms of just as you noted, creating a culture, because we talk about that or that phrase is tossed around a lot in nonprofit leader conversations, but you've given some specific ways to create that culture in terms of conversation starters and exercises that will allow your organization to feel that innovation, hopefully sparking those ideas as you have suggested. And of course, it's a good segues, as you would imagine, in your design of the book naturally to the second section which uh, I guess I paraphrase and say, yeah, how do we transform? We, we create this creative culture now, Leah, at our organization. Right, how do we turn them into action? Yes. Yeah, so that, yeah, that that first section of the book is is really the fun part, right? We've we've done a lot of brainstorming. We've surfaced good ideas. Everyone's got to be, you know, uh, has gotten to be creative and have these great discussions, but then ideas hit reality. Um, so this next part of the book maybe is a little less sexy, but still very important, right? Because um, we're, we're often building the plane while flying in nonprofits, and um, but then there's this reality, right? So our dazzling idea may or may not work, and we have to find out. So, so what we can do is design small experiments and learn and adjust before we scale and grow our idea. Um, one great story about experimentation um, in the book, there's this nonprofit with a mission to bring digital books to disadvantaged children and their families. And when this nonprofit launched in 2010, they began several experiments at the same time. So in one experiment, they gave Amazon Kindle e-reader machines to a small group of elementary students in Ghana. Um, but over time, what they found was that when the children would play during recess, the devices kept breaking. 
And then at the same time, the other experiment they were running was with a mobile app, which they started learning from observation that these young users much preferred and they weren't breaking the devices. Um, so the second experiment was, was what was working. And so today, almost 200,000 users are reading books on their mobile platform every month. And this nonprofit's name is World Reader. And there are several good lessons in this story. They were smart to spread their bets. If World Reader would have gone all in on the Kindle e-reader machines, they may have never discovered the better solution with the mobile app. So it's, it's far better to fail fast and fail small before investing too much on a program. And this kind of experimentation, of course, it helps us learn and innovate, but we also have to build in some expectation and toleration for failure. Um, but as we know, failure can be very scary. Right. So it's important for leaders and organizations to have the right attitude toward risk and failure. There's this wonderful book I love. It's called Money Well Spent by Paul Brest and Hal Harvey. And one of the stories in their book they share is how the Hewlett Foundation offers a prize to their own grants officers, and they encourage them to share what they call the worst grant from which you learned the most. And I, <laughs> I love that. Yes. Um, and then they'd have these gatherings with their staff to discuss this together. And I, I think it's great. It's very brave. It, it takes the pressure off and allows us to be honest and even laugh at ourselves um, and where I work at Mercatus, I'm really thankful that we have a board that encourages us to take risks and experiment and even fail. They'll tell us it's okay to fail, you know, as long as we're learning and adjusting. So, so that's great. I mean, you can't really have an innovative culture without failure. And oh. sorry to interrupt you, Leah, but I, I want to underscore that, right? Because it, mm -hmm. as a leader, I guess you have to set that tone, right? And, and one, be willing to sometimes laugh at yourself or at least set, create an environment that it's okay to fail and I guess I'm thinking both in communication to our teams and to our boards of directors. Absolutely. Is that, I guess that I'm assuming that would be kind of part of your the, the mentality here behind this. Absolutely. Yes. It, it, if it doesn't come from your board, I, I think that would be very challenging. It really has to come from the top. And so that everyone feels like they have permission to try and fail and learn and experiment and um, and modeling it too. you know, that that's in the book as well, like a, a supervisor who kind of walks the talk or even admits to the team. Well, you know, it was an experiment. We, we tried for these reasons. It didn't pan out. That's OK. Right. right. There's no right. terrible penalty. We learned from this and this is how we adjusted. So, you know, modeling it and walking the talk is, is so important. And, you know, it's based on what we learn from those experiments, it's, it's how we get start to get clarity about what works. And then our vision and our strategy start to come into sharper focus. So um, on our journey to transform innovative ideas into action, I, I would say experimentation is really key. Yeah, I love that. And, and again, I, as I think about leaders I've interacted with, you're right, it, it, there is an amount of courage necessary. Uh, but those are the kinds of organizations that are one going to make uh, progress and and frankly, there are organizations people want to work for uh, and work and uh, be part of. Yes. And so, in this era of a, a lot of turnover in the nonprofit sector, I, again, another benefit to what you're sharing, it seems to me, is you're creating a culture that people want to work for you. Exactly. Right. And that's just a dynamic environment you want to be part of. But again, it, it, moving to your third section, you know, you've talked about ways to create that creative spark and innovation. We, we talked about experiments to put it into effect. Uh, but now you talk about in the third section, right, Leah, about how do you build that literally into the organizational DNA? So talk about what does that mean and how do you do it? So if you 
uh, think about all the things that feed into a workplace culture. You know, how do we assign authority? Who gets to make decisions and why? Should it be a bottom-up or top-down decision? How do we design people's roles and how should we structure performance reviews and incentives and how should programs measure success? Well, all of these things are going to affect innovation for better or for worse, depending on how we structure them. So uh, as I was you know, interviewing uh, nonprofit leaders and looking for stories and examples, what I set out to do was look under the hood to find out, well, what structures help or hinder innovation in the nonprofit workplace? Uh, for example, almost every organization has these things we'll call organizational values or organizational principles. And sadly, sometimes they're just empty platitudes that new hires might hear on their first day and then never hear again. Um, but for some nonprofits, those organizational values are the key to innovation. And um, there's some good stories in the book about Mayo Clinic. It's one of the best nonprofit hospitals in the world. They're a nonprofit, and they're famous for finding innovative solutions and breakthroughs for people who are very sick. Uh, and Mayo Clinic's reputation did not happen by accident. And in interviews, team members of Mayo Clinic will say that good patient outcomes are because of their organizational values. And one of their values is um, the needs of the patient come first. And another value is unsurpassed collaboration. And they seem to truly live this. Their um, team members are trained, empowered, and encouraged to put those values into practice. And I'll just read briefly from the book. There's a quote from a Mayo Clinic staff member who said, if the employee's choices are either getting back to work on time or taking 10 minutes to get a wheelchair for a patient who seems unsteady, the patient will most likely get a wheelchair. Exceptional service frequently results when employees invoke values-based authority. I, I think that's just wonderful. Um, and that also sounds a Indeed. lot like bottom-up empowerment. So these values became part of their workplace culture, guiding all decisions, big or small. And there's another example that struck me from Mayo Clinic where their staff were getting concerned about how, you know, how hospitals can be very noisy and that can affect a patient's peace of mind and, um, you know, lack of sleep can disrupt the healing process. So the staff were thinking about this and they came up with an idea to conduct noise studies that led to designing quieter flooring quieter wheels on carts, and lower decibels for overhead paging. And that's innovation, right? It's stemming from their workplace culture and values. They felt empowered to do that. And then in addition to workplace culture, there, there are lots of other aspects of workplace structure that we can untangle and think about. Uh, as I mentioned before, how we approach metrics can stifle or support innovation. And I have a whole chapter about that. And to me, what metrics should do for your team is just help you answer the question, how do we know if what we're doing is working? And there are so many ways that poorly designed metrics can take us down a bad path and waste our time. Um, so we can show our teams how to recognize those problematic metrics and not do them and instead make measurement really work for us to actually spark innovation and um, serve as a feedback loop that can help us adjust and learn. So there are these organizational structures and processes that we can be intentional about because if they're designed poorly, they are absolutely going to get in the way of innovation. But if they're designed well, they can make innovation become part of our normal workday like Mayo Clinic. Uh, lots of great ideas there, Leo. And, and that section in particular gets my attention because I think a lot of organizations have, you know, what I would describe as beautiful poetry of value statements. And maybe it's on the website or it's in the employee handbook, <laughs> but they're not necessarily living it out. 
And, and I wonder, if, as you said, do we spend some time in our team meetings lifting up examples of our values? In other exactly. words, not just kind of reciting the platitudes of our values, but hey, let me tell you what somebody on our team did last week. Yes. That, that yeah. is evidence of that, right? Is that kind of what you're saying? That, that's what puts it yes. in our DNA. Exactly. And we can incentivize it to um, where I work at, at Mercatus. I, I love one of our um, organizational principles, which I really love is it's challenge. So having the courage to challenge the status quo or things that we think aren't working well. And I, I can challenge my own supervisor, you know, as long as I do it respectfully. And that's actually built into our annual performance review. So we, we do um, 360 performance reviews where it's, it's not just your supervisor, but it's your colleagues giving feedback on your performance. And we'll ask questions like, how has Leah demonstrated uh, challenging the status? status quo this year, be specific, right? And so I know that I think it's probably the same at Mayo Clinic, right? I, I'm incentivized um, to to show how I'm modeling those organizational values. And that really helps. That's a great question. And again, I, I'm asking rhetorically our listeners right now, yeah, does, does your evaluation process literally pose questions about the values that you bring or how you align with the values of the organization? Because I, again, I would say often they're separate. Right. It's part of the orientation, but we really don't talk about it anymore. But you're saying it is absolutely embedded in your DNA because your evaluation each year is going to raise those exact questions. Yes. Yeah. Love that. And I would encourage our <laughs> listeners to think about it. Um, you close the, the final section of your book talks about what does it mean to bring your innovation a game? We'll talk about what that is and how you do it. So the, the last part of the book is where it gets personal. It asks, are there traits of nonprofit innovators and social entrepreneurs that we can learn from? And we know that social entrepreneurs are deeply passionate and genuinely love what they do. They're you know, fearless and relentless problem solvers, and they boldly challenge the status quo. But the good news is these are traits that any of us can learn from and do. Um, so one chapter, what, what I try to do is unpack that then in the last section of the book. So one chapter in this section is called Discover Your Superpower, because I, I found that to be a trait over and over again of of people who really are innovative in nonprofits, that they know what they're about. So what is our superpower? So each of us have unique gifts and we have to make the best use of our time and talents and limited resources. We know we can't say yes to everything. So we have to make trade-offs with our time. So how do we confidently say no to things? I would say that we're far less likely to innovate or lead teams to innovate if we aren't focused. So if someone asked you to describe your own secret superpower, what would you say? How do you think about that? What are what are your gifts and your strengths and what fulfills you and puts the fire in your belly? So the chapter asks a lot of questions like that and encourages you to think about your unique skills and experience that you contribute to your work, to your family, to your community. And there are a series of questions that prompt you to think about yourself. And it shares stories of nonprofit leaders and how they found their superpower. And then another chapter in the section is about how nonprofit innovators learn to be persuasive, which is really important because, as we know, there are far more innovative ideas than there are resources. And if you think about your experiences working in a nonprofit, if you have an innovative idea, you've got to convince a lot of people, right? You've right. got to convince them right. that, uh, you know, th that your idea needs to stand out from the crowd in some way. Of course, we need resources. We've got to convince maybe our boss or donors, or you might have to convince superstar talent to recruit them to work on your team. 
And where I work, so, um, you know, we're a large nonprofit. I, I think we're large with 200 people. We have 30 different teams. And so you might be in a position where you've got to convince an internal team to support your project. So, for example, our, our IT team uh, gets 100 requests per year, but can only do, say, 30. Right. So how do they choose? And so this persuasiveness, it's a two-way street. You have to, if you're the one doing the asking, you have to make a convincing business case to them. But then the decider also needs to be transparent in how they make decisions. So I share how our IT team does that in the book, but you can apply the same model to uh, applying for a grant. Uh, so grant makers, right? They're probably going to get 100 grant applications, but can only choose five. Uh, so it works similarly. So the book shares examples for being persuasive, for making a really strong case, whether it's um, an example of a grant application or uh, an example of how you might uh, make a business case to your IT team. Um, but while I was researching examples for this, some stories just made me laugh out loud. Um, right. I was really surprised to learn how uh, Mother Teresa and Fred Rogers, who of course had great ideas, were often told no. Can you imagine saying no to Mother Teresa no, or Fred I Rogers? <laughs> <laughs> I know, but but people did. And so, you know, of course we know now that they were creative superstars, but, you know, they weren't always famous. Uh, they had to learn to become very persuasive, to kind of dust themselves up, off and try again. So just like them, if, if we want to bring our innovative A game, we're going to face a lot of obstacles and we have to be persuasive. Yeah, those are fantastic examples. And I, I love the element of that section. One is, a, in essence, a self-assessment tool. So if I'm a current leader, as you, you're posing great questions to leaders as they ponder their own leadership style and some of those elements, because they do have to continue to get better in, in their persuasion skills at whatever <laughs> level they are. It also strikes me too, Leah, that section is really good as a prep. If I'm thinking about or about to interview for a senior leadership position, because it, in, in this day and age, you're almost certainly going to be asked about your superpowers, right? And, yes. and your your ability to create culture and your ability to, to assure innovation. So it seems to me you could absolutely apply that section as a primer for your next job interview. Yes, for your next job interview, or even for something you want to launch. Um, any, you know, any of uh, innovative ideas you might have yourself. Like I want to launch a program, or I'm thinking of starting a nonprofit, or uh, where is the right home for my for my skills? Um, all all those things. I think those questions can help you, you know, think through uh, how you how you answer that for yourself. Indeed. Well, all four sections of this fantastic book, and of course your work in general, Leah has been a wonderful display, literally a checklist, I think, of, of ideas and concepts that a listener might ponder in their own leadership or certainly in their aspirations to move into more senior leadership. And I guess that, that'll be my closing question. Is there anything else that you would say to someone listening now that wants to incorporate more innovation into their current uh, position or maybe better articulate that aspiration? Any final advice? Yeah. So uh, I bet some of your listeners are uh, systems thinkers like I am. Right. And so I really, they probably noticed as I was talking, I really did approach the book uh, with a, a systems thinking in mind. And so all these things work together as a whole, right? If if one thing is amiss, like say workplace culture, it's going to affect innovation in your workplace. So all, all these things are important. Um, so the way I like to sum up my approach or in how I work or even in the book 
is to encourage leaders to use six principles that can help you lead your team to be more innovative. And I'll, I'll just briefly share those. But sure, the first, sure. first is to be like a detective. You want to be a relentless problem solver and identify hidden needs. And that Greystone Bakery story uh, kind of illustrates that, right, where they did an immersion experience to discover what's the real problem we're trying to solve? What do their clients really need? The second is to work hard to surface good ideas from your team and tools like design thinking can really energize a team. Those questions of what's desirable, what's scalable, what's feasible, and uh, posing that to your team as a whole and surfacing their best thinking. The third is to create a collaborative workplace culture that leaves room for discovery. That's going to unlock potential of your talented people. And I, I thought the, the Mayo Clinic story with the team designing the quieter wheels on food carts is just a, a great example of that. The fourth would be to encourage your team members to take risks, to not be afraid to fail. And we can design small experiments that minimize the risk and can test out our ideas like World Reader. Right. And the fifth is be smart in how you design your metrics and evaluation. Um, it should help you answer the question, how do we know if what we're doing is working? Uh, it should support team learning and serve as a feedback loop that supports innovation. And then the last, as we mentioned, was persuasion, right? We have to be really good at this if we, need, if we want to secure resources and win buy-in for our ideas. So these six principles all work together. And as a leader, you can give your team the best tools for creative problem solving. It's fantastic. What a great checklist. Again, if I'm using it as a self-assessment and how would I respond to each of those questions uh, for my organization? Or again, if I'm preparing for my future leadership position, how would I respond to each of those concepts or topics and in terms of how I would build it into the organization? So Leah, it's fantastic. Uh, and I'm delighted to uh, bring these topics to our listeners' ears. And if I can ask one more parting gift, a favor, of course, we're going to lift up your book. But I wonder, has there been another book that's been meaningful to you on your journey that you'd add to our recommendations from this conversation? Uh, I'm betting that many of your listeners are probably already familiar with Adam Grant. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's a, an organizational psychologist at Wharton who's written a number of best-selling books, um, usually with a great sense of humor. And um, one of his books I really love, it's called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And in this book, he warns us about overconfidence and to instead be open about what we don't know. And one of the stories he shares to illustrate this is about the inventors of the airplane, uh, the Wright brothers. And I've heard many stories about the Wright brothers, but uh, this was this story was the first first time I've heard this one um, that their dad, who was a minister, encouraged his children to read books about atheism and discuss their thoughts freely around the kitchen table. And so they had this kind of family culture of, of openness. And um, they, they actually said that arguing is the family business. <laughs> um, and so then later in life, as the Wright brothers were designing the plans for the first airplane, they strongly disagreed with each other about the design and location of the propeller. And for weeks, they argued so passionately and so loudly that their sister threatened to throw them both out of the house. And <laughs> so they were each thinking about what each other had to say, though, despite the loud arguing, right, they were hearing each other. And eventually one day their sister noticed they were no longer loudly arguing, but they were back to quietly working side by side. And what they found was they were each a little bit right and each a little bit wrong. And they came to realize that they needed two, two propellers, not one. And this was a breakthrough that led to the discovery of flight. 
Wow. And I think what um, Adam Grant was highlighting is the difference between uh, what he called relationship conflict and task conflict. So relationship conflict is, you know, personal, a personal emotional clash, maybe even animosity that can be painful and destructive. But in contra contrast, task conflict is a difference of ideas or opinions that can be constructive. And in the Wright brothers' case, their task conflict led to a breakthrough that changed human history. And I think we can all apply these concepts in the workplace and the nonprofit workplace. It's perfectly okay to have uncomfortable conversations. That's how some of the best breakthroughs happen. So yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of Adam Grant. His book, all his but all of his books are terrific. Uh, delighted to add that to the uh, reading recommendation list that this podcast is produced thanks to wonderful guests like you, Leah. So appreciate that and the principles behind Adam Grant's work. Certainly that is a book, uh, I think it's several Adam Grant books on the bookshelf behind me. Um, <laughs> so I'm delighted that you lifted it up. So Leah, thank you for all of the words of wisdom you have shared with our listeners. And, and where can people go to find out more about you and the great work you're doing at Mercatus? So the, the book is available at all major retailers, both hard copy and Kindle version. And definitely feel free to visit my website. It's my name, leahcrawl.com. And from there, if you would like, you can sign up for my blog where I write about these topics on nonprofit innovation, or you can follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. That's fantastic. Delighted to link up each of those connections in our show notes, and we'll encourage our listeners to check them out. So Leah, thank you once again for joining me on the path. Thank you, Patton. This was wonderful. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Leah as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you not only on your individual journey to nonprofit leadership, but also how you can make your organization more effective as an innovation hub, as well as creating genuine social change. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com. Just go to the podcast page, look for episode number 204, and you can find out all about this episode, what Leah can bring through her book, and the great work she's doing at the Mercatus Center. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to that same podcast page at patentmcdowell.com, and you will see the follow button. And by clicking that, you will not miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And, of course, if you like this one, click on the Episodes button at the top of that same page, and you can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic and guest name. Thanks, as always, for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.